We're going to pick up once again in verse number 36. Acts chapter number 2, verse number 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort to them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. And having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you once again this evening that Christ has risen. We thank you for an empty tomb, victory over sin, death, and hell that is ours through your spirit this evening pray that you would help us to walk in those realities. For those that may be struggling with the cares of this world and the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, even this evening that have taken those burdens into the gathering, I pray that they would be reminded this evening of the victory that we have in Christ. Let us claim the promise that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Let us not put on those shackles of sin no more, but let us remember that those chains are broken. We have freedom in Christ. We remember that this evening. We remember Christ. It's because of him that we gather as his bride, the church, the body of Christ, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would stir our hearts this evening as we consider your desires and purposes for your church. Pray that we would simply be obedient to them, that we would be known by them, and that we would be careful to protect them. Father, I pray that the pulpit of Liberty Hills Bible Church would preach only your word, the apostles' teaching, biblical doctrine, the truth of the inspired and inerrant word of God. It is our foundation. 
And by it, Father, we are guided and directed. Father, we pray this evening that because of the truth of the gospel, that your word would go out with great power in our midst, that it would change our hearts as individuals, that it would impact our marriages and our homes. It would change how we relate to one another, to our children, how we respond in the workplace, how we interact with our neighbors. I pray that we would be salt and light as you you have called us to be. Father, I pray that as we are obedient to your word, that the gospel would just go out with great power in our midst, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, and in our homes. Father, not only locally, but we pray for the church globally that it would have open doors of opportunity to share the gospel as Paul even prayed for in Colossians. I pray that those open doors of the gospel, that we would be faithful to take them and to walk through them and to plant and water. Father, I pray that you would give increase, that we would see souls gloriously saved and that we too, even in our day, would see people added to the church day by day, those who were being saved. We long to see that, Father. We know that you still have the power to save. Father, let us as disciples remember that you have called us to go. That is the means by which your good news is heralded to this lost world. We are your ambassadors. We have been chosen by you to share the message, to be reconciled to God. Father God, I pray that as we consider our covenant to one another, even this evening, that we would stir each other up to that gospel work. That your great commission would not be cast off to the generation of the past or generations to come, but it would be ours to hold the torch of the gospel and that we would be faithful to it. So Father, I pray this evening that you would do a work that our church would never be the same this evening as a result of hearing your word. We pray these things in your name, amen. This evening, we're going to continue our series, part two of Gathering Faithful, as we continue to work through the detail of our covenant. Again, we have finished the introductory elements of our covenant, and we now are working into the aspects of what does it look like now for us to live out this covenant in accordance to the word of God. So last week we looked at the first two core aspects of gathering faithful, gathering faithfully, excuse me. It goes without saying, but I'll say it anyways. We've covered this in previous weeks, but those that are gathering faithfully in our churches are those that have been redeemed by the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so who gathers faithfully? It is 
believers. Christ followers, those that have been saved, Christians, called out ones, the remnant. We have gone by many names over the years, but those who are called to gather faithfully are those that have been saved by the gospel. From that moment, the moment of salvation for each and every one of us, and ever since God has poured out his Holy Spirit at Pentecost, believers past, present, and future have been called to gather faithfully in the context of a local church. And so why have we added these two significant words, admonitions and challenges, commitments to gather faithfully? It's because it's God's desire. It's God's plan for his church. So the faithful gathering of the church is a faithful gathering of believers. Friends, I hope you'll be reminded this evening as I was, even as I studied for this message and even as I prayed a few moments ago, a couple thousand years later now, in our day, God is still on the move in hearts and lives. Amen. This is an incredible reality. It's quite frankly, when you think about it, unbelievable. Only a supernatural Work of the Holy Spirit could sustain a message that could sustain a following for thousands and thousands of years. Why? Because it's truth. It is real because Christ did come as the son of God and live a perfect life. He did go to the cross just as was prophesied in the Old Testament. He did shed his blood as that perfect lamb of God. And he did go to a grave and rise again on the third day. And based on those realities, we can have eternal life if we place our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Amen. God is still in the business of saving souls. So as I was reflecting back on everything that has been taught to this point in this covenant series and everything that will be to come, there was one reality that I was seeing begin to stir in my heart, and it's this. If there's anything that should should happen or result as as a benefit of this series, it's this, that your faith should be bolstered in the realities of Jesus Christ. Your faith should be strengthened in the realities that Christ is building his church. He has built his church and he will continue to do that in the days ahead. No matter how uncertain our society may be, no matter how chaotic our culture and, and, and democracy may be, no matter how much of a minority we may slip into as born-again believers, the realities of the gospel still remain true. So there should be an immense amount of hope that what God has done and is doing will go on in the days ahead for the next generation. And that will continue on. That perfect plan of redemption will come to completion. So these are the realities. These are the realities that the early church lived in day and out. So they gathered faithfully. 
And we too, even in our day, should desire to gather faithfully just as they did. This brings us back to Acts chapter number two. Look with me there. Acts chapter number two, verse number 42. As we read the context of the verses before, that was Pentecost, obviously, right? Peter, on the heels of his denial, by which he denied Christ three times and cursed God and ran off into the wilderness. God was not done with Peter. God had a plan for Peter. He brought Peter back in his Luke chapter number 22, verses 31 and 32 reminds us that uh, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he would sift you like wheat. Christ is foretelling Peter's denial. But he says this, this is Jesus speaking to Peter, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. When you returned, Christ says to Peter, strengthen your brothers. And this is Peter in Acts chapter number two, doing just that, strengthening his brothers, walking in the power and the realities of a risen Lord. He preaches boldly, repent and believe, be baptized. And as a result, 3,000 souls were saved. And as these 3,000 souls were saved, they began to faithfully gather. Luke records the details of this early church. In verse number 42, if you remember from last week, they devoted themselves to first the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and then these final two aspects, the breaking of bread and the prayers. So we're going to combine these final two aspects, the characteristics, if you will, of the early church. We're going to look at them in terms of worship. So the church of God if you remember last week, should learn about God. Secondly, we looked at the church of God should love like God. And thirdly, this evening, the church of God should worship God. The church of God should worship God. So as I look at these, these final two aspects of the early church, which are, again, the breaking of bread and prayer, I couldn't, again, help but connect these two in the commonness of Worship. But a group of saved individuals faithfully gather for the teaching and preaching of doctrine, they will be instructed through the inspired word of God and how they should relate to one another. We see this all throughout the New Testament of these one another passages, right? We see it over and over again of, of how we are to relate to one another in the context of the local church. And these one another passages, what happens to them? They'll begin to come alive. They'll become a reality as they interact and relate to one another in a, a new way through the lens of the gospel. What happens then? That love for one another, what does it do? It produces a spirit-led movement of fellowship that is rooted in the common understanding of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. This fellowship is selfless, 
This fellowship is sacrificial and it looks like Jesus. This is the core elements of fellowship. So when the church faithfully gathers, it's committed both to doctrine and to New Testament koinonia fellowship that we looked at last week. It will always result in worship. Biblical doctrine accompanied by biblical fellowship produces worship. Make no mistake about it, the early church worshiped the Lord. And it primarily did this through the expression of these two elements, the breaking of bread and prayer. So let's look at the first element of of worship that the early church exemplified. The early church's commitment to the breaking of bread was an act of worship. So at first glance, again, some of these things seem very assumed and simplistic, easily understood. But I think there's potentially more to these simple elements of the breaking of bread and the prayers for us as a church to understand. Maybe the simplicity of these realities have caused them to be diluted or undervalued or unappreciated in our life individually and corporately as a church. So the New Testament church was committed to regularly, excuse me, observing the Lord's Supper. They did this in a couple different ways, both in a formal and informal way. So look at me at verse number 46 of chapter number two. Verse number 46, Acts chapter number two, it says this, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So we see this formal and informal aspect here by way of attending the temple together and the accompanying breaking of bread in their homes. So it's interesting to note that the early church did not immediately do what jump ship, so to speak, on the temple services. They continued to what go to the temple for scripture reading, for the reading of the Torah, for the hour of prayer and and other aspects that would be valuable to their understanding of God. In fact, we see Peter and John. Verse number one of chapter number three, heading up to the temple for the hour of prayer. So it seems to be somewhat common here in the early church that they continue to still congregate and to gather where? At the formal meeting place of the temple. It's likely, though, that these new believers, they would not have been a part of the temple sacrifices. Nothing necessarily explicitly states this, but it would be assumed at this point that they have understood Jesus rightly as Savior and Lord. That the work of sacrifices, the shedding of blood on their behalf was done. It is finished by Jesus Christ. So although they would have been a part of the temple, it's likely that they would have not been a part of these types of sacrifices. They would have understood Jesus Christ rightly as Messiah, that he had paid for their sins. And as such... As the Lord had given to the apostles there in that upper room discourse and the Lord's Supper was instituted by a new covenant that was through what? The blood of Jesus. 
That would have been a part of the apostles' teaching, right? But they were attending the temple day by day. Peter and John going to the temple for prayer. This would have been a part of their regular cadence of fellowshipping and worshiping the Lord through attending the temple. So they were there through scripture reading and prayer. They would have a strong desire to be obedient to the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and Baptism. Jesus left his disciples this. You remember in the Great Commission, Matthew 28 and 29, Jesus Christ said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So they would have likely formally observed this time of communion and baptism away from the temple. Specifically for communion. Communion likely during this time would have been a part of a potentially a larger meal for all those in attendance. This was part of the admonition and instruction that Paul gave in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. What do you remember about that passage? Some were going hungry and others were even getting drunk all under the guise of what? The Lord's Supper. They were abusing this ordinance for their own gain and for their own purposes, for their own pleasure. So Paul went on to say in verse number 33 of 1 Corinthians 11, he went to say, so then my brothers, when you do come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for your judgment. So ultimately, the Lord's Supper, communion, it continued until all these many years, right? We think of history. There's been different understandings of the Lord's Supper over the years throughout uh, church history, but... Regardless, right, wrong, or indifferent, the Lord's Supper, communion, has continued on and been passed on as a part of an ordinance of the church. So what was the core aspect of the church's worship? It was observing the Lord's table. Being together in this time of communion and remembering the Lord's sacrifice. Remember, it would have been that great commission that the apostles received before the Lord ascended up to his father to teach them everything that I have commanded you. What did the Lord command them? The new covenant? What the Lord's Supper represented? That this new covenant was through his blood? And so what did they do? They taught that to those that were being saved. And thus it was established as a core ordinance and aspect of the church's worship. This ordinance, the Lord's Supper, communion, it has and will continue to be the heartbeat of the church. When you think of the early church, they probably did this every time they met together. There's not necessarily anything that directly says that. But based off of Acts chapter number 22, day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, there was an informal and formal aspect of this. They continually 
The New American Standard Version says in, in verse number 42, not just they devoted themselves, but they continually devoted themselves to the apostles teaching the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So it's no doubt that they observed this ordinance often. We've gone through different cadences here, even at Liberty Hills. We went from once a quarter. Uh, we've increased that to once a month, every fourth a Sabbath, we, we observe the Lord's Supper. Others do it less, others do it more, but the core admonition here is that we need to exemplify the heart of the New Testament church and continually devoting ourselves to this reality of the Lord's Supper. When you think of all the things that we do in our worship, Throughout our calendar, is not the Lord's Supper one of the most meaningful and special times of communion and fellowship that we have? The Lord brought this phrase to mind. It's, it's become and has been and will continue to be the heartbeat of the church. It's important that this heartbeat of the local church, the the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread, that it doesn't become a stale, stagnant religious ritual, but rather we remain steadfast to ensuring that this heartbeat of the church is truly representative of that new covenant as the Lord gave us. It's a reminder every time we observe it that we are no longer bound by the law hopelessly lost in our sin and dead in our works, but rather God has made a way, amen? Through the blood of his son and all who place their faith in Jesus Christ, we can and will be saved. This is what the Lord's Supper proclaims to us, right? In fact, Paul includes that, right? At the end of his quoting of Christ delivering the, the, the admonition of the Lord's Supper to his apostles, and until the Lord comes, we proclaim his death, right? So Lord's Supper. So as we understand rightly the breaking of the bread, the Lord's Supper, this ordinance that was given by the Lord to his apostles and taught to the church, this produces in us a certain disposition or demeanor in our worship of the Lord. We see this in our passage in Acts chapter number two. We see both reverence and we see joy present in their worship. So proper understanding of who God is. That's what doctrine? A proper understanding of who God is, it should bring about a sense of awe. And then understanding what God has done, it should bring about a sense of joy. This is ultimately what worship is all about. This is what it should produce in our midst. Awe, reverence, joy, and praise. It's biblical worship. As we see it right here in Acts chapter number two, it should aid in a proper understanding of who God is and, and what he has done, his person and his work. So the early church, what did they do? They devoted themselves continually to the worshiping of the Lord in both reverence and joy. Look at verse number 43. And awe came upon every soul. 
awe came upon every soul as it followed this continual devotion to apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. Verse 43, what did that produce? Awe. Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. What did they do based off of these realities? They were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with what glad and generous hearts, being rooted in that koinonia fellowship. They had generous hearts. This is what flowed from them as a result of right thinking and doctrine and fellowship together in the common experiences of life. What did they do? They praised God. They had favor with all the people. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. As I was reading through and studying through this passage, it was interesting, this phrase, and having favor with all the people. Many commentators believe that it was a result of the Spirit-led move of Pentecost. Peter preached, thousands were saved, they gathered together as a church, their activity was being faithfully together for what? The preaching of doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. As a result of the church being faithful to those activities, the community around them knew that God was in their midst. The community was changed as a result of the church being faithful to be the church that God had designed. And as a result, what happened in that community? There was an awareness. There was awareness that God is present in their community as a result of what he was doing. I wonder, even in our day, does our community, do our neighbors, do our extended family members, are they aware of God's work and presence in your life as a result of how we interact with the church, how we relate to the church, the body of Christ. Even maybe how we relate to one another in the context of the home and our marriages, our relationship with the kids, relationship with our employer. They're, they recognize it. Yeah, there's something unique and different about that man, that woman, that young person. Why? Because, man, I... The gospel is just on their lips. The goodness of God is just, the testimony of the Lord is just constantly speaking about it, thinking about it, constantly praying about different things that are coming up in their life. As they're interacting with me, I don't even know this God, but I share something going on in my life and they ask if I can, if they could pray for me right then and there. And I don't necessarily know what that means, but does anybody have a testimony like that as a result of, you interacting with them, you them seeing you, observing you in the context of the local church. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I believe that God did that work of salvation through the context of the local church as they were faithful to what? Be the hands and feet of Christ and to love others in their community in a selfless, sacrificial way in the way that Jesus loved us they were loving others. 
And so verse 43, awe came upon every soul. Awe came upon every soul. Our prayer as elders is that the Holy Spirit of God would grant our church to truly be in awe. Phileus. That you and me, that we together, corporately as a body of Christ, that we would be in awe of who God is. We would be in awe of the realities of the gospel. There would be a, a reverence of our creator in the context that we live right here in Liberty Hills Bible Church, that we would be a church that is known as in awe of who God is. When and how did awe come upon every soul? Only after the church continually devoted themselves to right doctrine and biblical fellowship and sharing in the obedience, observing the Lord's Supper, which led them to a place of prayer and dependence on the Lord. All comes over a believer when by God's grace they understand and submit to God's will and ways for their life. This is best expressed in the life of a believer through the ministry of prayer. So the church of God should worship God, not only through the Lord's observing faithfully the Lord's Supper, but when we gather faithfully, our church should make time for and be committed to corporate prayer. There's a lot in the Word of God about individual prayer. There's many books, much writing on the ministry of individual prayer. But when the church gathers, we should be praying corporately. Amen. We should be praying corporately. So awe comes over a believer when by God's grace, they understand and submit to God's will and ways for their life. This is, again, best expressed in our Christian life and our Christian experience through prayer. From a corporate perspective, submitting to God's will and ways can only be best expressed in the life of the church through faithful prayer. I've heard Mark Dever often say that we should pray so much in our church gatherings that non-believers get bored. We talk too much about God, about a God that they don't believe in, Mark Dever goes on to say, I can remember sitting in church through corporate times of prayer as a child and thinking, man, is this, is this pastor ever going to wrap this prayer up? Man, this is, this is really getting to be a long one. Friends, this should be the realities of our church. We should enjoy laboring together in prayer. Amen. We have a few moments in our corporate liturgy in order of service for prayer. Uh, typically, we, we pray. We have a time of worship through confession in between our, our songs of, of worship. A time of confession is a time of private and individual prayer. To prepare our hearts before the Lord to receive the word of God. 
that we would have hearts ready to obey. And ultimately, we have a time of corporate prayer, pastoral prayer, where we welcome and invite you all to join typically an elder-led prayer as we pray for God's will to be done in our service. We pray for great power to be uh, in our midst as the word of God goes out, that it would change us to be more like Christ. We pray for the gospel to go out in our midst and in the world. We pray for the church that we would be faithful. We pray for those among us that are, are suffering and hurting. There are many aspects of our prayer, but we invite you to be involved in that time of corporate prayer. So friends, we must pray for those that are sick. We must bring these things to the, to the Lord. We must pray for those that are traveling, that there would be traveling mercies. We must pray for many of these things that we often pray for. We should pray for those bumps and those bruises, for those sicknesses and ailments. Why? Because God cares even for those. But friends, when was the last time you prayed for the salvation of your neighbor? When was the last time you even prayed that God would give you a concern for the salvation of your neighbor? For a coworker, for a family member? When was the last time you prayed for our church? When was the last time you prayed for us as elders? When was the last time you prayed for your marriage, for the marriages in this church, for the children in our midst, that the parents would be faithful to raise them up in the nurture and instruction of the Lord? When was the last time you prayed for humility and the fruit of the Spirit to be in your home? Friends, these are challenges to me and to us. You prayed for open doors of the gospel and foreign lands. Was the last time you labored in prayer over a grievance in your hearts toward another member in the church and you committed to keep on praying until the Lord brought you to a place of repentance where you could freely worship together with your brothers and sisters in Christ? This comes about through what? The ministry of prayer. So friends, God has called us to be steadfast in Prayer to pray without ceasing. When we gather and we gather faithfully, prayer should be in our midst. Prayer is the soothing balm that heals all strife and, and anger and bitterness and wrath. Confusion, uncertainty, and chaos, they're all impacted through the faithful ministry of prayer. So, friends, prayer should shape the life of the church. Amen. Did you get that? Prayer should shape the life of the church. I'm not sure who to attribute this, this quote to, but I resonate with it. It says this, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. It's not enough to believe this reality and principle and never see it in our practice. So friends, at the end of the day, the church that truly believes the gospel will be a church that is committed to praying for the gospel. This brings me to Paul's closing remarks to the church of Colossae in chapter four, verses number two through six. 
it gives us maybe some simple and appropriate things to pray for while we gather. Paul says this, his final remarks to the church, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. I just, I just love that challenge from Paul to the church. After all the teaching, after all the doctrine, after all the things that he shared with them, his final remarks was what? Continue steadfastly in prayer. Do you have to have a, a Bible degree, a master's in theology? Do you have to have uh, some immense knowledge of the things, the word of God, absolutely not. Can we all be a part of continuing steadfastly in prayer? Despite how much or how little you know about Jesus Christ, whether you've been saved for one day or for 30 years, we can remain faithful and steadfast in prayer. He goes on to say, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I might make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom, Paul says, toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be what gracious, seasoned with salt. Why? So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Oh, how relevant this passage is for the day and the time that we live in. When there is a world that is growing more and more hostile to the truth of the gospel, Jesus Christ, Christianity. We should pray this every single day. That there would be an open door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. That we would walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of our time, letting our speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. At the end of the day, the New Testament church was a praying church. Why? Because they rightly understood their dependence on the Lord. This is what prayer communicates both individually and corporately. If we are praying, it communicates to the Lord that we need you. I am not the source of truth. I do not have the answers for my own life. I do not have the answers for you or for this world. Only God does. And so prayer communicates back to the Lord through worship. I need you. Amen. We corporately need you. There was humble disposition about them. They weren't clinging to their rights. They weren't help heralding some bill of rights. They weren't holding fast to their nationality. They weren't trying to one-up their neighbor. There's a humble disposition about them. Why? Because they knew the Lord was in their midst. God was working through the Holy Spirit and that God, God the Father, would be faithful to build his church in his time and in his way. These realities caused the early church to do what? Joyfully enter into great seasons a prayer. Prayer for them was not a transition to get to the next song. 
Prayer was not some filler to close out the teaching of the word of God, but rather prayer produced a joyful continuation to remain in prayer. Why? Because they knew that prayer was as necessary for the church as breathing is to the human body to reference back to that quote. Prayer is what enables us to love and serve and live like Jesus did. If you look into your day, your week, and you consider how often you think about Christ, the gospel, ministry of the word to those around you, it typically is going to be proportional to the amount that you pray that God would do those things in your life. So if it is very little time in your week that you spend thinking about and meditating on and walking in the realities of those things, it's probably because we have not labored in prayer for God to do those things in our life. So prayer is what enables us to love and serve and live as Jesus did. We must pray like there is something at stake. Why? Because there is. We must pray like our lives depend on it. Why? Because they do. We must pray like we are in a war. Why? Because we are. Prayer is essential to the Christian life and to the corporate gathering. So the early church, they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Friends, these were the undeniable marks of the New Testament church. As they gathered faithfully together then, and by God's grace, these marks will be the marks of our church. Liberty Hills Bible Church, as we continue to gather faithfully now and in the days ahead. Just as I did last week, I want to finish with the simple reading of Hebrews chapter number 10, verses 23 through 25, where the author of Hebrews gives this challenge, admonition, command to gather faithfully. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near friends as we've looked at early accounts of the New Testament church and what they continually devoted themselves to. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. We have included this in our covenant. Why? Because it's biblical. Secondly, because it honors and glorifies the Lord. Why? Because it is his church obeying in his way. Amen. So let us clean to these realities. Let us as covenant members that have come together to gather faithfully, that we would see these aspects come alive in our midst. And friends, as covenant members, as elders, if we were to steer away from one or 
or another of these core aspects of the local church, we pray that you would come to us, admonish us in the Lord, and that we would recalibrate back to these core elements of the body of Christ. Do you join me in prayer this evening? Father, as we consider this simple challenge that we have included in our covenant that comes right from your word of God to gather faithfully for what purposes? For the teaching of biblical doctrine. For that biblical New Testament koinonia fellowship that is rooted in the common experiences of life, that we would day by day be together having all things in common, that we would have glad and generous hearts as a result of being together in that way. That we, when we are together, Father, we would be faithful to the ordinances of local church, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and as we consider breaking of bread that Luke recounted of the early church, we remember how good you are to us in giving us Christ, that every time we come to the Lord's table, we proclaim his death until you come. We proclaim an empty tomb. We proclaim hope in the gospel. We proclaim power over sin, death, and hell. And Father, I pray that breaking of the bread, that it would be just the heartbeat of our church, that it would be a continual recalibration of our hearts and our minds back to the foot of the cross in an empty tomb. We would remember Jesus. Father God, I pray that as we continue on to gather faithfully, that our church would be a church that's known for prayer. That yes, we would get prayer requests, we would be mindful of each other in our prayers. But Father, even beyond prayer request, that we would remember your purposes for prayer, that we would pray as Christ taught us to pray. Let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and that we would remember that, Father, we are to pray for the power of the gospel to be unleashed in our communities, and that there would be open doors for the gospel in and through us, that you would allow us to plant and water seeds of the gospel and that you would give increase. Father, let us be faithful to pray for these things. Father, I pray as we desire to be faithful to these aspects that the early church was, that we too would be faithful church. We would be a bride, not that it's just pleasing, but we would be a bride, part of your church, that magnifies and glorifies the groom, Jesus Christ. That we would be faithful by your grace and that any good works that we may have, Father, may not be for our own glory, that it would point others back to you. It's Matthew 5, 16, that others may see our good works and glorify our Father, which is in heaven. Father, once again, I pray as I often have through this series that we would be that city that's set on a hill that cannot be hid. That others would see Jesus as a result of seeing a church. We pray these things 